Welcome to the Yams and Yuka podcast, where we explore the fabric of black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences, and more, sharing the stories of international creatives. I'm Kamara. Hi, everyone. I'm Heather, and we are your co-hosts. Thank you to all of you joining us for the first time, and especially thank you to those who are returning to the table with us. We have a wonderful artist joining us at our virtual table for our main course. But before they come and have a seat, let's see what we have on the menu. All right. So, Kamara, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. Thank you. And yourself, Heather? I'm doing all right. You know, surviving, trying to thrive. <laughs> um, lately, I've been in like a thrive mode. I've, I've had some renewed energy. That's good. That's good. Today we're gonna talk about um our our past and our heritage mm-hmm. and how that impacts us in the present and, and what does that mean. So before we dive into the conversation, I just wanna share something with you that I learned from another podcast actually that seems to keep coming up and I've actually been sort of um experiencing or unpacking this concept, I would say probably for like two years now. Mm-hmm. Yes, two years. So do you know what epigenetics is? No, I have never heard that word before. You've never heard that. Please, please enlighten me. Oh, yay. I get to tell you something new. Share your knowledge, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to give credit. So when I first I first learned about this from um, the show called The Friend Zone, mm-hmm. um, I'm obsessed with that show, that podcast. I've been listening to them since day one. Um, those of you who don't know, that is hosted by Francesca Medina or Hey Friend Hey, as she's known on the interwebs, um, Dustin Ross and Asante. And they are um, podcasters in the States. I'm particularly connected because Asante's from Atlanta, like I am as well. But also, I just really love the three of them, their chemistry um, and what they give to the podcast world. Okay, we'll I'll fangirl over them later. But basically, <laughs> one of their episodes... They were talking about epigenetics and sort of what that means and how that impacts us. So I'll, I'll give you a definition. I've just Googled this. So it is the study of changes in organisms called, caused by modification of gene expression rather than alteration of the genetic code itself. So in layman's terms, when you think about DNA and like what makes you who you are mm-hmm. um you know obviously in your dna you get your hair color you get your eye color you know what what your genes that you get from your parents mm-hmm. um that kind of makes up your physical and what you look like and how your body um acts in a physical way but with epigenetics it's more the study of like the gene expression mm-hmm. itself and so it goes into how I understand it, I'm not a scientist, but how I understand it and how they help me understand it is that, you know, you, there's certain things ingrained or experiences ingrained in your, in your parents and your ancestors DNA that is not as simple as eye color that Mm -hmm. gets passed down. Right. So kind of the idea of that PTSD Mm -hmm. from our ancestors who were enslaved Mm -hmm. and those experiences are relived in ways of how we respond to present day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's not much difference between how slave masters brutally um, 
beat and killed slaves. There's really no difference between that and how the police are brutally Mm -hmm. beating Mm -hmm. and killing black people today. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the same way that that experience and that expression has been passed down through black people, sort of that fear Mm -hmm. and, you know, that pain and just that, that survival as well. Mm -hmm. um, That's been passed down the same way, sort of that, you know, white people and those who've had that privilege, that sort of like idea that they can, and it's okay to do that Mm -hmm. to people of color Mm -hmm. that has also been passed down. Right. So, we're we're not going to talk about sort of like that, <laughs> but just the idea of what does it mean to have a connection or not have a connection to your past? And how do you see that expressed in yourself in ways that you didn't really realize? Or do you find yourself connected to certain things and you just don't, you can't really explain it? Um, well, I certainly agree with the concept that you've just explained. You know, I have read similar things, especially when it relates to trauma being inherited um mm-hmm. I'm not sure that there's something that I can pinpoint when when I've thought oh that's that's my ancestors speaking to me you know what I mean but yeah. I definitely sometimes feel I would say that I'm a spiritual person and I definitely have had moments I can't tell you specific examples but I I definitely remember having moments where I just feel I don't know, feel something that I can't really explain is the Mm -hmm. only way I can put it. And I know that it's actually somebody or something guiding me. Um, I definitely believe in that and I've definitely experienced those moments. So yes, I, I would, I would say that I have felt that, but you know, to give an specific example, I I can't remember any specific ones, but I definitely remember the feeling Mm-hmm. of happening to me and something that you mentioned with that in the past I mean I had this really interesting experience with my students we went on exchange to Amsterdam and we worked with this brilliant company called Untold who work a lot with uh dance forms of the African diaspora um mm-hmm. and history and culture and they had this woman leading a session and she did something called an ancestral I don't know what it was called, but it was like an ancestral walk. And she Mm. basically guided the students through her words to the past to connect with their ancestors, to speak to them, to get their blessing and to bring them back to the future. Right. Mm. And so I was just an observer on the outside. I wasn't doing the walk. The students were, but you could just, and the students didn't even know what they were getting themselves into. And a lot of them, some of them were skeptical at the beginning, thinking what on earth mm-hmm. is, is about to happen here. But you could just see the emotion that happened, the emotional progress that happened. They were just so emotional throughout the experience. They, You could literally feel when they connected with the past and mm-hmm. the messages they got, it like came through their body in an emotional response, which I've never seen anything like mm-hmm. that. So I definitely agree that we are connected to the past. And I know that everything that we do is, is our past guiding us. Um, yeah. So yeah, I have, wow. have had moments like that. Have you had something that you can really pinpoint 
I don't know. Sorry, I'm just taking in that moment that you experienced with the students. That's really, really beautiful that they got to yeah to have that. It was un it was unbelievable, and you know, in the end, everybody was like in tears. Um, mm-hmm. It was very emotional. And if you'd ex- if you'd said that to somebody like outside, oh, we're gonna go to a walk to the past and speak to our ancestors, you're like what <laughs> do you know what, what i mean <laughs> it sounds a bit it sounds a bit crazy but um i i saw it i saw it manifest within the students i felt the emotion mm-hmm. that they they felt something they definitely yeah. experienced something in that moment yeah so yeah yeah that's beautiful i would say um what comes to mind is that that sounds like a very like joyful and pleasant experience mm-hmm with ancestors Mm -hmm. and I cannot say that I've actually had that Mm -hmm. um to that extent I do get a a a certain feeling and um warmth when let's say I am in a traditional African dance class or when I was trained in um in the states and we would have our drumming classes and you know we would do things like that but I've most of my experiences where I do feel the presence of my ancestors or I've been in those kind of things have always been centered around slavery. Right. Um, or have always been centered around the civil rights movement and the struggle and the pain. Right. Which I'm ready to experience something else. Like I've been mm-hmm. in a plantation, you know, wow. that was actually a school trip of mine. Oh gosh. Um, when I was in high school. We went to this place in Florida called um it's not far outside of Jacksonville, Florida. It's called American Beach. And there's a beach lady there. She's like one of the oldest um black people in that in that particular city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she had seen I can't remember if she I think her parents had been enslaved or something like that. I can't remember. But, you know, we went down to, and it was all centered around this book called American Beaches as well that I had to read for um, my high school history class. But part of, before we went to go meet her, the first part of the trip was to go to an old plantation. And I mean, I used to, I grew up driving past plantation houses. Like my private school is the next street over is Plantation Way. Like, wow. mm-hmm. Like Georgia is like old, even in Atlanta, there's still like old plantation money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You can tell by the houses, like right. and the land, like it just has slavery dripping all over it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I lived in that a lot. Um, juxtaposed with like a thriving black community in Atlanta and as well being the great granddaughter of a civil rights leader, mm-hmm. you know, and have like I had all of that kind of mixed in mm-hmm. so our you know it wasn't foreign to me but when we went to american beach um and went down to florida like to the plantation it was still the the master house was still there mm-hmm. the slave quarters were still there wow we got to walk through them and oh, no. they weren't anything but just like some stone hedges kind of stacked up nothing was covering it like it was just open um and it was really eerie and you know we got to walk the plantation mm. and it was just like it just felt painful do you yeah, know what i mean i can imagine i i could i couldn't do that i i would well i mean if i were to do it i would certainly have to really uh, mentally prepare myself before that yeah, yeah i i i definitely feel 
I feel in those situations. I, I definitely feel. Like even right lost. now, I have a really nasty feeling in my gut mm-hmm. that I don't like. And I have like, again, going back to that epigenetics, like I I have anxiety and fear right now, even just mm-hmm. talking about it. So I can't imagine living it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so like I say all of that to say, like, I wish I just had more positive experiences in right. getting in touch with my ancestors. Right. I mean, even somewhat positive like you know there's the civil rights um museum in atlanta that's uh fairly new i think it's been about five years now right and again it has like a a really conflicting feeling when i go in there Mm. on the one hand yes it's um primarily it's it's celebrating the civil rights movement in general Mm -hmm. there's a huge exhibit on um dr martin luther king jr um, and then there's the other half of the exhibit are all of these different like major churches that had a huge impact um, and all these other civil rights leaders that had a huge impact. They have actually a counter where um, you can sit down and experience with people experience when they would sit down, you know, when black people would go and sit, do the sit-ins in the white restaurants and you have people yelling at them. And I remember my first time going in, I went because my great grandfather's in the museum, you know, they have his voice preaching as part of like the mural of Auburn Avenue, which is where, you know, Ebenezer Baptist church is my great grandfather's churches and some of the other like influential pastors and activists um, and civil rights leaders, they have their voices there. And so I'm going there, you know, as part of my own family heritage to hear my great-grandfather's voice again. But in the same space, like right next to that, like just, you know, to the diagonal is the place where you can do sit-ins. And the first time I went, because I've been there a couple of times, the first time I went, there's just like this line of like white kids waiting to sit down and experience this. Right. And they're they're crying. They're, you know, they're feeling all these these emotions, which is great that they're learning this. Mm-hmm that they're beginning to understand what black people went through, what the civil rights movement included, Mm -hmm. you know, not all that it is, but what it involved. But it's that it's again, like joy and pain. And I just want like, what is it to experience your ancestors in a joyous way? And what is it to then bring that forth um, in what you do in a celebratory way? And also it not being, you know, we talked about it not being a qualifier because some people, some artists have this thing of, yes, I'm black, but that's not all that I do. And that's not why I'm creating. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But again, epigenetics, like it's that expression, your, your heritage, it comes through naturally because there are just certain things that you can't explain or that you can't help. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely there is a lot of pain, but I think the very nature of African culture, especially, and something that came through, especially during the slave times is the celebration and the joy and the fact that Mm -hmm. um, we have our music, we have our dance and celebration, even in times of like death, it's celebration is very much a part of cultures of the African diaspora. So I think if we take the time to connect to that part, which we which we do inherently, like you said, the fact that we are involved in the arts mm-hmm. is 
is is um a testament Part to that it is yeah. a testament to that because our culture is about is about dance is about expression is about joy mm-hmm. and and inherently yeah as i said even even in death they make that a celebration mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that that is a celebration every aspect of our life is something that is joyous so i think it's just about kind of remembering that because i don't think because it's actually not part of our heritage to, to feel pain because mm. in African culture, even pain is something positive. So mm. that part of our culture, actually, if you think about it, that's, that's not our culture. That's not from us. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's time that we just remind ourselves of that, that we are a joyous community um, inherently and, even through pain, we, we always find that joy. So I guess it's a, it's a good time to just, just remind ourselves and, and find ways to do that. Yeah. That, that's, that's what I would say. And it, it even reminds myself, you know, we do have a lot of negative things coming out, but we just need to remind ourselves, this is not, this, that's not our heritage. Actually, our heritage mm. is, is celebration. It is joy. It is beauty. It is art. And let's carry that forward. Yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will welcome our guests to the table. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's time to introduce our dinner guest. Today we have textile and performance artist NM Boenyo. But before she comes to the virtual table, I'll share a little bit about her. NM is a British Ghanaian textile and performance artist. Her practice investigates identity, womanhood, and humanity while also advocating the healing benefits of craft. With her work, she seeks to deliver the collective consciousness to a positive place of awareness by creating live spaces of healing. By using craft as her portal, she pushes us to face the truth of a dark past and the emotions it brings forth, thus bringing us to a point of spiritual awareness, both of self and humanity. NM has exhibited with galleries and institutions such as Taffeta Gallery, Bonhams, New Ashgate Gallery, Sulgabuel Lovell Gallery, and Artists Project Contemporary Art Fair Toronto. She's delivered performances for Christie's, Hogan Lovell's LLP, Henry Moore Institute, and as part of the collateral program for the opening week of the 58th edition of Venice Biennial, and as part of the 154 Contemporary African Art Fair Marrakesh Public Program. Her collaborative commissioned artwork exploring empire, slavery, colonization, and the tea trade is currently on view at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. She has been featured in Garage Magazine, The New York Times, Financial Times, The Independent, Guardian, Vogue, International, Australia, Spain, and The British Versions, and Natal Magazine. Wow, that is so impressive. Welcome. Wow, welcome. Thank you so much, and thank you for that amazing intro. Well, it's your work, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so incredible. When I was reading your um your bio earlier, I was like, this girl has done some work. 
I feel like I'm just getting started though. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very impressive and just just so many places, so many names, names to mention, so many high profile venues that you've that you've worked with. Yeah. It's um it's funny when you hear it all, it's like, wow, did I actually do that? You know, um, because I guess an artist's life, it's always so busy, you're running from one project to the next, and sometimes you actually don't get time to just take stock and, you know, feel the gratitude of the things that you've accomplished. So um so thank you for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. Well, we definitely want to hear more about um the things that you've done with your work and your artistry. But before we do that, we want to get to know a little bit about your background. Um, so you are British and Ghanaian. Where do you consider home? What is home for you? So that's always an interesting question for me because I think I kind of identify with the likes of Tai Selassie where I feel like I'm a global citizen um, because I was born here in the UK um, but I moved to Ghana when I was seven and I lived there for five years so that very much feels like home and I go back quite often um, but then I also lived in New York for seven years and started a career in design there so that also feels like home and I have a lot of friends and ties there as well um, and I do feel like I'm a bit of a gypsy, so I feel like everywhere is home for me. Um, but obviously, because my ancestry is linked to Ghana, Ghana very much is, you know, is home. But of course, I'm currently in the UK, in South London. So. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about sort of like the cultural differences you experienced living in Ghana and then New York and and having you know lived and being born here in Britain uh yeah so Ghana was a really beautiful experience um I learned so much about myself um about what it is to be Ghanaian and what it is to be ever which is the tribe that my family come from mm -hmm. um and I really started to really get a sense of pride. I think always growing up in the West um, and, you know, being, um, you know, a family of, that has, you know, moved from another country, you always feel slightly othered. Mm. And, you know, I struggled with my identity and still did when we moved back to the UK. But I learned so much about um, what it is to be Ghanaian having lived there um, and just what the people are about what the pride that they feel in their identity and that definitely did rub off on me and you know it's something that I've learned to really you know not necessarily accept um embrace I think would be the right word um as I've gotten older and it's something that has become kind of part and parcel of who I am and the work that I make as well I I'm really thankful um because there's so much beauty in um the Ghanaian way of life uh, there's so much kind of richness in terms of the culture and the heritage of the Edward tribe as well um and I'm just I'm just learning so much more about who I am through um the work that I'm doing now which kind of researches that a lot more so it really is kind of the the center of who I am and then I I guess I would say that being British is just kind of a, an attachment to that there's you know things that 
make me who I am because of being brought up here in the UK um, that I'm very thankful for and very proud of as well. Um, and then I guess my time in the US um, was in my early to mid twenties and it was, um, it was really defining. Um, I grew a lot through that experience. Um, you know, I moved there practically straight out of university, so I was very green. And New York is a very kind of fast-paced, aggressive place to mm-hmm. kind of really cut your teeth. Um, and working in the fashion industry as well, it can be very cutthroat. Um, and there were a lot of experiences that mirrored um, Devil Wears Prada. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I really identify with that film. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think you're going to you're gonna have to share a story or two, but... Please. Oh, <laughs> um, it's just, yeah, I mean, you know, it's true what they say. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. It, mm-hmm. it make or break. New York is a very, very, like, powerful place. And you know, so much, so much opportunity. Um, And again, it was a really great place to grow and just learn about the world, um, learn about business um, and, you know, learn about who and what I want to become and who and what I don't want to become. Yeah. And I think that very much became one of the reasons that I moved back to the UK and was really kind of what, began to motivate my career in art really because up until then I was very much focused on design um and then I realized that actually it's it's the making that I was really um intrigued and excited and motivated by and I wanted to get back to that and so yeah without that experience in New York I don't think I'd be here today um so I'm also really thankful for that and also thankful for this kind of organic route that has led me to be where I am now. So you've had a lot of experiences that have shaped you along the way, which is so exciting to have had the opportunity to have so many, you know, varied, varied environments, really. But one thing that we know that connects us to places is food. So do you have a favourite food from home? whichever home you want to choose definitely um so it definitely has to be Ghana because mm-hmm. often yeah. it's just amazing uh I'm not gonna get into the whole jollof thing I'm just going to meander away from that <laughs> it's, it's a age old debate yeah. like every, every single Ghanaian we've spoken to we spoke um the last person we interviewed was from Ghana and the age old debate who makes it better yeah Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what makes me laugh is like, you know, that it's this whole thing between Nigerians and Ghanaians, and yet the Senegalese are the people that invented <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. I have to say, I do, I'm not even schooled on the difference between the two jollofs. Oh, there's a big difference. So I need to I need to get myself up on that. 
Kamara, I'll, uh, I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll, speak, we'll speak later, yes, but, but carry on, carry on. <laughs> um, so there's this really gorgeous snack that we have in Ghana. Uh, it, we call it sokins. That one, you have to have the West African uh, lilt when you say sokins. <laughs> and it's literally gari, which is um, like a dried cassava, like granules. Mm-hmm. Um, and you put water with a little bit of evaporated milk, um, if you're, you know, Gigi, um, and some peanuts and sugar. And honestly, it's like the best snack. Like I used to shovel that down all the time in Ghana and it was like a real treat mm. to have. And it's so simple, but it's just so good. Um, and not many people really kind of talk about So Kings, but Ghanaians know. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, with that in mind, do you have, do you have, is there, you know, a special memory with that food? something that comes to mind or does it take you back to a particular time it does indeed so it's really tied to a bit of a traumatic experience for me (laughs) but it was a real comforting thing so randomly one of the weird illnesses I had while I was in Ghana I just all of a sudden and it sounds so gross sorry guys but I grew I grew a boil in the center of my forehead which was really um stressful because my uncle decided to treat it with iodine which is like purple so I walked around like in school and stuff with this big purple blotch in the middle of my forehead Mm -hmm. for weeks (laughs) and we went to the doctor and I got uh, I had to have injections and I can't remember how many Uh, I feel like my childhood exaggeration tells me 10 but I'm sure it wasn't that many (laughs) um I had to have them in my bum so I was just really upset sore just miserable child um and my cousin um, took me to the hospital and then when we came back to uh, my aunt and uncle's place that was the first thing she made me to console me was soakings and so it's always been this like comforting thing um uh, that and feeling that I have attached to it so yeah <laughs> oh that's so unfortunate I can't imagine going through childhood you know it's already tough enough but to have something like that happen to you I can imagine that really influenced you and in, or impact you in some ways but yeah you've had a lot of cultural influences in your life can you talk about how that you know having those experiences in New York um having your experiences in Ghana how they made you throughout your life how they've influenced your choices that you've made yeah um so I think my experiences in Ghana I've only really truly begun to appreciate them more as I've gotten older and as I've come to really get comfortable with who I am as a black woman as you know an African woman as a black British woman um and really kind of identifying with what it is about me that um that is really truly gone in and it's something that is ancestral Mm. right and I come from a family where, well, actually most most um, African and Caribbean families, it gets to a point where there's only so much that you know about, you know, your ancestors. Um, and for for me, like, there's only so much I know about my grandmother, 
because my mother only knows so much they wouldn't really have conversations like my mother and I do now um, and even that has only really been recently because of my practice that I've started to kind of delve into more of my mum's life before she was mum you know she was a woman who moved to the UK at, you know in her early 20s like what was that experience like that's something we've only just started to kind of delve into um, and she never had those conversations with her mother and her mother died quite young so there's only so much she knows about her mother and then you know her grandmother my great-grandmother so there's kind of this missing link in the story of who I am and through my work I've started to really learn that it doesn't matter if I don't know these stories because they're inherent in me because a part of each of these women lives in me and mm. deeply in a cellular level I know you know I know this and I know that you know their their strength and their power and their resilience and their you know their um, their insecurities all of those things kind of lie in me and so that's been a really beautiful thing to kind of start to unravel and understand and appreciate um, and I think one of the things that's definitely stuck with me about Ghana is that I was just surrounded by so many amazing women Mm -hmm. when I lived there my mother moved over with us um to take care of myself and my two brothers um and there was just this tribe of aunties I mean we had the tribe here in the UK as well but there it was just so immense um and what I really took from them was their confidence um and you know at the time I didn't understand it but now I understand that that's very much rooted in their the secure knowledge of who they are um and it's without these kinds of um comparisons to you know western um ideas of beauty or of what femininity is of what you know a woman should be um and so that is something that's kind of stayed with me and I'm really beginning to appreciate as I start to kind of really tap into that myself um and then with the US I think it's um it's very much just learning learning to live in another country um as a young adult um and all the responsibilities that entails and just trying to build a career and then it also taught me so much like i said before about where i wanted to go with my career and who i wanted to be very much in terms of character i saw a lot of nastiness in the fashion mm. world and i didn't like that and i didn't want to become that um and i remember meeting a uh, British woman who just happened to work in the fashion industry um, on the bus on the way into New York when I lived in in Jersey City this was like when we first moved mm -hmm. to the US um, and I was doing an internship and obviously she heard um, my accent I was talking with a friend of mine who was English as well and she turned to both of us and she said oh what are you doing here so we explained where you know interns were just working with this company we're hoping to stay here and and work and um, and she just said whatever you do please don't change because I can see you're both really lovely young women and this industry is cutthroat and it's nasty and I don't want you to become that and I think that stayed with me um, mm. 
and through my own experiences of the industry I started to see it and experience that from others and it just really changed my whole perceptions of what it was that I wanted from a career the kind of fulfillment that I needed from the thing that I was going to do for the rest of my life and realizing that this wasn't going to give me that and realizing that I had options and that I you know I could choose something else um and I was actually made redundant and that last job I was kind of toying with whether I should stay and find another job because I I was applying for my green card as well Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately I decided to move back to England because I realized that I was just so unhappy Mm -hmm. and if I stayed in the US I would have to work in fashion because I had to do a role that was attached to um, my degree because of the law around visas and until I got my green card I wouldn't have the freedom to do anything else and so it just seemed like you know what this is the universe the higher power creating this path for me to start over. And so I think what I've learned most from my time in the US is that nothing is ever a mistake, even if it feels like it at the time, Mm -hmm. and that it's all part of your journey. And, you know, you'll come to a point where you realize that everything that's happened was to prepare you for what it is that you truly are supposed to do in life. As long as you're open to receiving that message, then you'll get there. Um, And so that's something that I'm really, really thankful for, because I've really learned to appreciate the fact that I I know it's a privilege to be able to do the thing that I love the most. Um, but if I, I feel like if I hadn't have had that experience in the US, I may have ended up always thinking, oh, fashion was what I wanted to do, not mm. realizing that actually that was not for me at all. So I'm really thankful that I did it and I learned so much and I have so many amazing memories and friends and, you know, I will always be tied to that place. Um, but I'm happy that I, I through that experience, realised what it is that I want to do with my life and was able to have the opportunity to, to follow that path. Mm, nice. Can you describe um, another experience where you, that changed sort of how you identified yourself? I would say my art career, actually. Um, because I feel like I've grown so much as a person through the experience and particularly now with this body of work that I'm doing it's so personal to my own growth um in so many ways I've been challenged um just in terms of these new mediums that I'm exploring like performance which if you'd asked me a couple of years ago I'd have been like hell no you'll never catch me performing in front of people but now it's just so natural and so organic and so important to the stories that I want to Mm -hmm. tell and the spaces that I want to create especially for black women um but also I think in um and through my artistic journey, it led me to create this sisterhood with um, this collective of artists that I started, the Black British Female Artists Collective. And there's so much that we want to do with the collective to be able to support not only each other, but other artists as well. Um, and so it's really kind of been a space for me to grow personally, but also to help others. Um, and I think 
for me that is what is so important is having the ability or the space to be able to help others um is what really truly fulfills me oh wow yeah it's it's so important and what you've done we're gonna um delve more into the black british female artist collective in in a moment but before we come to that i would i'd really love to know where did you or when did you decide to focus on tights and textiles as your medium of expression particularly if that's not what you studied specifically? So textiles, actually, I did study um, at university. So I um, I did a general art and design course at college. Um, and as part of um, that course program, you did a module on textile design. And at college, it wasn't even about making textiles. It was just playing with surfaces and materials and creating art through that. Um, and so we'd be experimenting like with sugar, painting on sugar, painting on sand or making paper or making felt. And I just really gravitated to that. Um, and so I wanted to kind of continue studying it. And so went on to do textile design at university. Um, and so very much learning about making fabrics, about dyeing fiber and just all the things that go into cloth and design. Um, and so, and that's kind of how I ended up going into fashion design because I um, specialized in knit um with print and embroidery and and wanted to kind of work in fashion as a knitwear designer and so when I then decided to come back to art making I really wanted to do it from a textiles base because I just found so much freedom in textiles and be able to manipulate materials and actually create art with that was just so exciting to me and it was you know it was free 3d it was coming away from a canvas and it was just creating texture and tactility and and it just felt like something that was just so much more about the senses and throughout my practice i'd always been interested in the natural world and so working with tights is a bit of a departure, but actually I realised that, that it's still kind of intrinsically in there. Um, but I started working with tights um, back in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so that interest basically came about because um, I started seeing a lot of brands that created um, new tights for black women and women of colour. And these were all kind of black women owned brands. Um, and it just got me thinking, wow, like, you know, we're in 2016, like when were tights first invented? How long has it taken for us to get to this point of equality with something that is just such a simple kind of product that women, you know, across, you know, the West wear, um, but also, obviously, the textile artist in me was thinking, oh, it'd be so cool to kind of play around with tights and make work with tights because they're so malleable and can do so much with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where um, this kind of story with the tights began. And through kind of extensive research, which is ongoing, I started really kind of diving in deep and realizing that actually this history is so layered and textured and there's so much that I want to talk about with this little simple kind of pair of nylon stockings um so looking at its history and thinking where does that intersect with the history of black women um and so I went all the way back to the first iteration of tights which was these kind of cotton and silk stockings 
that really became fashionable um, around kind of the 1800s, which is, you know, the height of slavery. And so then I started thinking of the links between, you know, the British elite and the gentry who have their portraits hanging up in National Portrait Gallery and all these big institutions here in the UK with their stockings to display their wealth because only the wealthy could afford them um and these were people that either owned plantations or owned shares in you know organizations linked to the slave trade and it was these women and men who were growing the cotton that was then spun to make these stockings um and also thinking about how those stories are untold you know the wealth and where this wealth was generated from is never talked about um and you see these paintings lying in these places Places and none of the text talks about, you know, where the wealth of these families came from and the fact that it was made off of the backs of black bodies and black women's bodies specifically in relation to this body of work. Um, and so I just kind of started researching more where the intersections lay um, and was thinking about my mother as well, who moved here in the 60s. And so she's kind of part of that migration period from, you know, Windrush in the 40s, when so many African and Caribbean women moved to the UK um, to work in the NHS and tights were part of their uniform. But of course, they couldn't find tights to, wear, to match their skin tone. Um, and so I had these pictures of my mother which I turned to black and white and you can still see the stark contrast between her skin colour and this pair of tights. Yeah. Um, and I found that really interesting. And, and that's when I started having the conversations with her about her experiences here and the fact that not only was she kind of being minimised by these tights, but by the experiences she was having on these wards where, you know, patients didn't want her to touch them because of her skin colour, calling her the N word and all of these things. And yet she was still having to provide care to these people and nurture. And it got me thinking as well about the fact that black women throughout time have always been these nurturers and carers and often, you know, for other people and, you know, at the detriment of their own families because they're not present at the family home to provide that care. And again, if you think even back to the plantations where you had so many black nannies that were looking after the plantation owners' children, and couldn't be there for their own children who were out on the on the plantations working. Um, and it crosses over so many things into advertising, into the ballet industry, which is very elitist. And that's kind of where the performance links in because the movement that I do is very much inspired by ballet. Mm -hmm. um, so tying in that story of, you know, what black ballerinas face in that industry and having to dye their tights and pancake their shoes um, but then on stage they still have to wear these kind of pink flesh tone um, stockings to create this continuity with the, the rest of um, the dancers. It's very laid, there's so much more to it so I then started kind of creating works that told these stories um, mm -hmm. but found that there was so much more that I wanted to say that the artworks couldn't um, and and that's kind of how the performance element came about um, and it's all, almost a fluke but not because like I say I feel like organically things work out the way they're supposed to but mm -hmm. I was invited to do um, to deliver a paper for a conference and just thought as an artist I don't want to do a deaf by PowerPoint presentation I want it to be really <laughs> immersive for people to engage with the artwork and so I 
created this concept for a performance where I could build in my artworks so that the audience could see the works, but also really understand the context behind it. Um, and so I recorded this fictional um, story of four women and I linked their birth dates to that of myself, my mother and my matrilineal ancestors and then told this story of a, a a house slave who finds this pair of stockings um, and compares it to her skin and then a nurse on a ward who has to find stockings and can't find stockings to match her skin tone and then this young woman who is you know able to to buy a pair of uh sheer chemistry uh, types <laughs> we know them yes yeah, yeah, yeah. i thought you might you might know them <laughs> um so sheer chemistry is a fantastic um black women owned um tights brand that caters to black and women of color and is founded by the amazing talia gray and the gray might give an inkling as to why we were giggling <laughs> she, she has a fantastic sister that's all i'm gonna say so but but you go on continue please um and so yeah so she finds these tights that finally match her skin tone and she has this really powerful moment of reclamation which i feel is what these brands are doing by creating space for us and you might think that oh it's a pair of tights it's not a big deal but it really is to be included in a way that you don't have to try and assimilate you have to you know you don't have to try and find an alternative you can just go and see yourself reflected and represented is so important and that is you know the 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 real focus of this work and the healing kind of work that I want to kind of to do around this for myself and for other black women is about reclamation and about awakening our true selves and um doing away with you know the layers of trauma that we've experienced both generationally in our and in our own lives and all of the things that have minimized us and made us feel lesser um all the ways that we've tried to assimilate to beauty forms and standards that just aren't us and just try to have a sense of really accepting our true selves in all our true beauty um mm -hmm. and so the performances have kind of grown out of that and they all center around creating that sense of healing and awakening reclamation um and then really embodying our authenticity um and healing the pain that we've experienced you know throughout our lives yeah well I think it's just amazing because I've seen some of your work how you really um connected types to history and just as you said it was layered but it's just so deep when mm -hmm. you when you think about the stories and 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 the need for tights and and where tights come from and how you manage to connect it to the plantation it's just it's it's just an inc incredible how you literally weave weave those stories Thank you. Thank you. And I love the way you used weave because it's a term that you use so much, you know, in kind of relaying that story of weaving in these stories and telling these stories that need to be heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what inspired you to start the Black British Female Artist Collective? So the collective um, came out of my own kind of frustrations and challenges, um, kind of navigating the art world and 
really finding it difficult to find you know space for myself as a, as a black woman artist and then in talking to other artists finding that you know they all felt the same way they you know had similar if not practically the same um, experiences um, and also just looking at the arts industry as it stood when I set it up which was 2015 and realizing that I couldn't name a black British female artist that had gone before me. You know, my contemporaries fine, but who were the ones that went before me? You know, I knew of male artists like Inka Shonibare and Chris Ophelia, but I couldn't name one and I found that so problematic and I knew them they must exist. Um, and so the collective was really born out of that. Um, that space and wanting to really kind of put us on the map and say we're here we're making amazing work we work across all sorts of different mediums and our work is just as good as any of our you know contemporaries of any other race and so why are we being excluded mm -hmm. and I definitely felt that by coming together we would have a much bigger voice than me trying to do this by myself um, and that's definitely proven to be true throughout our journey um, and what's been amazing is to see is all the other kind of groups and collectives and organizations that have been coming out since then that are really doing you know the same work of trying to create space um, and not just for black women artists but you know for black male female lgbtqia just across the board, creating space for all of us to exist and create sustainable careers, but also really create that legacy and that documentation. Um, because I think that's what's been lacking is the documentation of our work um, and kind of us owning um, that space as well, owning the narrative, because it's so important that we tell the stories that we want to tell because we have had that experience and no one else can do that for us. And I think, historically all the narrative around um black art has been told from the white male gaze specifically mm -hmm. um and is is very kind of derogatory um and has kind of framed and shaped what the aesthetics of what black art should look like um to the point where even in art schools students are being told to create work that is more about the identity and the culture and the struggle and it's like that's not all well, that, that we are, are. Yeah. yeah yeah um so yes the collective was kind of born out of that and the aim is to help the members build sustainable careers but it's also about the kind of legacy the, um, work that I was talking about which is creating an incubator program for um, emerging artists kind of just to create support and um, that peer support the mentorship and the learning around what what you need to be an artist these days and a lot of this isn't isn't even taught in art school um, and it's around the law around art around licensing all of these things that are kind of more the business side of being an artist um, mm -hmm and also working with artists outside of the UK. Um, so we started a kind of program of cross-cultural exchange and we did one in Ghana where we work with um, basically black female artists across different regions to one, open a discourse um, about the challenges that they face in those regions, which would be very different to what we experience. Um, and also to create this sense of collaboration. So we created this amazing um, 
installation artwork together. So we worked together over a number of weeks um, and then exhibited it. We hosted a artist talk. Um, and then the idea is that we continue those conversations um, with the hope of really building a family outside of the UK um, in hopes that by coming together collectively, we can start to address the bigger issue, which is that black female artists globally don't sell for as much as black male and then you know the white contemporary they don't get the they don't get you know um gallery representation as much and they just don't get as much opportunity um and how can we get them you know acquired by institutions and when they are required to actually get their work on the walls rather than sat in storage for years so so yeah so the work is it's long term there's so much more that we we hope to to accomplish but those are kind of the key areas that we're kind of hoping to to really be able to build and sustain um and so yeah we every year we we get there you know we just keep building little by little sounds amazing no oh, thank you speaking of that um speaking of the long term work what is your vision for the collective in the future Oh, so wow. The vision in the future is that um, we will be in a place financially um, where we have the stability to be able to open up to more members and support um, more artists um, to be able to potentially have a brick and mortar space. Um, where we can offer subsidized space for artists for their studios and a space to be able to exhibit um, and, and just a place where you know they feel safe to come and connect and network and just be um, oh gosh it's so much more but I think yeah it's 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 not easy I'll be honest it's not easy obviously I am a practicing artist myself um as are the other artists in the collective and so this in itself is its own full-time job um and it's uh it's just a case of we do what we can when we can and we're kind of continuously thinking of creative ways to sustain um the organization so that we can do the work and obviously, I think this year has been particularly difficult in that sense. So, yeah, we kind of roll with the punches and just keep reinventing and seeing how we can do, you know, the work. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds like um, that vision is not too far off, judging by just the body of work that you've done so far and, you know, your 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 attitude in, in approaching work and creating. So I, I'm sure it is it's very close and I look forward to coming to visit the gallery really yeah. <laughs> very exciting um, and you mentioned as well that you've managed to keep working during uh, the current uh, lockdown period so what are you working on at the moment yeah so actually I was super lucky um just before for, well actually not just before so in February um I was in Marrakesh and that's where I did the performance um so it was actually hosted by a arts platform called Black Shade Projects mm -hmm. and in conjunction with 154 for their public program and so after the performance I did I was invited by Black Shade Projects to do a five-week artist residency in Marrakesh so um I was actually there when the pandemic kind of was at its height and unfortunately had to come back earlier 
um, but I've continued to do the work um, while I'm here. Um, the summer was supposed to be a back and forth between here and Marrakesh to continue the work, which sadly we haven't been able to do. Yeah. Um, but I'm still in conversation with um, the platform and we're looking at building this into a much wider project, which I can't really talk about at the moment, but it's super, super exciting. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can kind of get it off the ground next year. I was able to do a online live stream performance during the lockdown, which was really, really cool, actually, for um, Unshut Festival Sheffield, which is a performance festival. Um, and so it needed to relate to this moment in time. And so I decided to do a performance in homage to the Black NHS nurses. Um, and it was really amazing because I was able to um, collate some images and some stories of five nurses and I included my mum and one of my aunts um, and it was basically a retelling of those stories and it was a way of really knitting them into the history of um, the United Kingdom because they like so many others contributed so much and they've never been given a voice so it was my way of kind of paying homage to them and um, and telling their stories so so that's something that I was really really kind of honoured to be able to do um, at this time especially um, and uh, yeah now working towards another performance at the end of September and then an exhibition early October so lots to keep me busy and out of trouble as I always say. <laughs> yeah it's so great that you've been able to still be creative during this time and I did watch the video um, of the Unshut performance and it was very it was very powerful really really oh, yeah. really really powerful and given everything that you've done because you've you know you've you've done so many things created so many artworks collaborated um, set up your collective what are your proudest personal or professional achievements oh wow that's a difficult <laughs> one I think there's so many um I think definitely the collective um and you know the no one knows what the future holds and um I'm really hoping that we are able to achieve some if not all of the things um that I mentioned before um but I think whatever else happens I just I'm just so grateful and thankful for that space because it saved me personally on so many occasions just having that sisterhood of women who are inspiring create amazing work um and just really beautiful souls who you know will hold you up when things get difficult you know the art world is not an easy space to navigate as a black woman um and they get it and they understand it and they're so supportive and we've really like helped each other in so many ways um and so that alone has been such a, a benefit to to putting the collective together the performance because like I said before it's not something I thought I would ever do and it's like learning this new this new part of myself that I didn't realize existed um gosh I got <laughs> this is a really difficult question um I don't know I feel like every day is such a gift because I learn um so much more about myself and others through the work so yeah it's just a difficult one <laughs> yeah 
I can imagine. Well, we've heard plenty of your achievements and we are excited to see you achieve so much more. And I'm sure you will um, as an artist and as your collective. Before we wrap up, we do want to ask what um, advice would you give to anyone that wants to become a textile or performance artist um, or any any kind of visual artist? Um, oh, that's a really good question. I would say um, really kind of do the research, um, learn as much as possible about, you know, the kind of art, artistic mediums that are out there. I would say you can be influenced by anything and everything. So even if you're specifically a performance artist or specifically a textile artist or a painter, doesn't mean to say that those are the only types of work that you look at. There's so much to be inspired by. Um, I would say as well, network, get out to exhibitions. Well, when you can, <laughs> I think <laughs> things are starting to open up to open up now, um, but it's such a great way of meeting people and for me, so many kind of projects and opportunities have come out of those relationships that have been developed over time. Um, but it's also just a great space to meet other artists, which is always beneficial because you, you know, you, um, you kind of vibe off each other and it's a great space to kind of talk about ideas um, and, and grow together as well. Um, and just to be resilient because it is a tough industry um but that's not to say that you know you can't carve a space for yourself um and so it's also really believing in yourself and your practice and working hard at developing it and don't be afraid to ask for advice mm. from others that inspire you just always reach out yeah yeah that is good good advice definitely definitely especially the part about resilience i think mm. you that's that's something that especially when people are starting out they might not always realize how much they need so thank you for that information and I'm sure our listeners and any upcoming artists will take that on board but and then before we go we have a surprise question for you something that we ask all of our guests actually uh we yes yes I know um something that we have to know uh which do you prefer yams or yuca and how do you like them cooked Oh, I'm a Ghanaian. It's got to be yam now. <laughs> well, I don't know because you said one of your favorite meals is actually made from cassava, which is another way, another word for yuca. Um, yes. So are you sure? Is it yam for you? It definitely has got to be yam because yam, you can eat it boiled, you can eat it. Hey, fried yam. Oh my gosh, I love fried yams. Seriously, it's so good. And then also, yam, plantain, pound it now. Fufu, come on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so then, so we're also thinking as, you know, as a side, as our side hustle, we want to make a recipe book. So what do you need to tell us? What is the perfect meal, including one of one of those, please? Oh, goodness. Boiled You're going to have to pick. Oh, this is difficult. This is like the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you know what? I think there's no wrong answer because they're all really good. Um, I would say fried yam just because the last time I was in Ghana, um, I was with my three friends when we did the, um, the cross-cultural exchange project and pretty much we lived off fried yam. Mm. It just is just so yummy. 
um, and you can have it with anything, you know, you can have it with some plantain, you can have it with vegetables, you can have it with anything practically. So yeah, yeah, fried yam. And it's so easy, you just cut it, put it in the oil, finish. <laughs> <laughs> I love the excitement in your voice when <laughs> you talk about it. But you know, food does that, you know what I mean? You, you, you talk about your favorite food and it just, it lights you up and that's, that's why we love it. That's we, That's why you know, we continue to relate it to so many things in our lives Absolutely. and our cultures and stuff like that, because it is, it's really part of us. So thank you so much for, for sharing everything, your recipes, your stories, <laughs> your advice. Um, before you go, can you please tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and your work? Where should they reach out? Sure. So um, my website is www.nmgdesigns.com. So that's E-N-A-M-G designs. Um, and then I'm on Instagram at NMGD. Um, and then if you want to find out more about the BBFA Collective as well. So we're online at bbfacollective.org and on Instagram, Twitter as at BBFA Collective. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, um, and listeners, please be sure to check her out, check out her work. Um, it's really, really beautiful, very, very inspiring. And thank you so much, Anam, for sharing your journey and your career and all of your advice. Um, we're excited to share this with everyone. Yeah, thank you. Um, we are really looking forward to seeing more of your work as well. I'm excited for that, especially when you have the chance to go back to Marrakesh. That will be exciting and your other upcoming projects. And we most look forward to you joining us at a dinner table in person again soon. Yes, I would love that. We just have to decide if we're having yam, yuka, or yeah absolutely oh thank you so much dear. no thank you guys so so much for this opportunity i've really loved speaking with you and you know just sharing more about my work and i look forward to hearing more amazing podcasts and getting truly inspired by everyone you feature so thank you for creating this space for for us as well oh thank you thank you for joining us um it is appreciated most definitely so listeners we're going to take a break to digest everything nm shared with us and when we come back it will be time to indulge in a little dessert mm. we'll be right back Right, we are back and it is time for dessert. Um, we're going to recap our sweet and savory moments from the conversation with NM, um, looking at those light, fluffy, cheery moments that give us a nice sugar rush, as well as the savory moments that stick to the stomach, something a little bit more fulfilling, um, that's really hearty and makes us think. For me, my sweet moment, I had to really think about this. Um, my sweet moment was when she first arrived in New York or New Jersey and um, she was getting ready to go into the city for her first sort of like few days in the job working in fashion. And she happened to see a British woman or a British woman heard her and her friend speaking and they got into a conversation and realized, you know, they had the commonality of working in fashion and the woman gave her and her friend the advice of um, not losing themselves and not getting caught up in sort of like 
the grit and the nastiness or what the fashion industry in New York can be and how competitive and how it can change people, you know, for her to get that reminder of a little bit of home when she's Mm -hmm. was just about to embark on a really big new chapter in her life. I mean, she was in New York for seven years. That was really sweet to me because I think those kind of moments in, for me, when I experience those kind of moments, um, it feels like a stamp of um, a- approval um, of what I'm doing or or a, mm-hmm. a bit of guidance, like God or the universe is telling me, okay, this is what you, you're, you're going to experience, something that you need to experience for your life or some sort of transformation. And, you know, you get those little reminders that, that tell you how to approach the experience or that you're on the right path, but you know, there are things that will come your way. So that just felt really nice to me. Um, and it was, um, just really interesting to hear someone else experience something like that. Yeah, it was, it was nice. And like you said, those, when those things happen, it's, it is like the universe is speaking to you and giving you a little reminder that you are on the right path and, and certain things to, to think about. Uh, absolutely. Um, for me, the sweet moment was when she was talking about her childhood in Ghana and she said she had a boil on her forehead for one, one and um, I think it was her oh, uncle yeah. or her dad, I can't remember who, <laughs> put some purple iodine on it. So I can just imagine this child walking around school with a purple dot on her on her head, right? you know. Um, yeah, it just would have been a funny, funny moment for me. So that was, that was just a sweet lighthearted moment for me that I, that I remember that, that stuck yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that moment could have been fashion, you know it what I mean? Been. Like, could have been, and you know, it could have been really fashionable. Like that's, it's a, I think in today's age, you know, 2020, if someone had like a, a dot on their head, like of any color, we wouldn't really think much about it. Like, okay, that's a choice. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but I can imagine in Ghana being, I think she was fairly young. I don't know, eight or something. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a slightly different story, but yeah, absolutely. Right now we would, we would definitely make that fashion. And, you know, there are so many cultures that incorporate that um, into yeah. their cultural practice as well. So you would just assume that it was something cultural, something religious perhaps. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But I just, yeah. I thought that was cute. Um, so yeah, I like that. And what about your savory moment? Um, for my savory moment, there was quite a few, um, just, just moments that she mentioned to think about. The one that I liked the most is she said, nothing is ever a mistake. It is all part of your journey, Mm. which I think is really important to remember, you know, just having that life of having no regrets because everything that's happened to us in our life makes us who we are today and has brought us to where we are at this point in time. And if we hadn't experienced certain trials or tribulations or mistakes, I say in inverted, in inverted commas, because, you know, it's not, it's not really a mistake. Mm -hmm. It's just a learning, learning moment. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes at the time we can beat ourselves up about things or making wrong choices or choices that we, we thought perhaps were not, not the best or we, we could have made better choices. But, you know, we learn from it. And yeah, and it's all part of your journey. And she said something else, be open to receiving that message. So 
Mm. So yeah, being open and, you know, it kind of tags on to what you mentioned in the sweet moment, that woman who spoke to her and said, don't change. You need to just be open to receiving all the messages that come your way, not dismiss them. So that's my savory moment. What was yours? Mine is uh, linking to heritage. Again, I know that's the big theme for us. Um, when she said she was, felt like she was missing links in her heritage and her background, mm-hmm. and then she arrived in Ghana, you know, that kind of brought that to light as well. Um, and she just really wasn't sure. But then as she was aging, as she was getting older and having more experiences, she came to realize that a part of each of the women in her life um, and in her ancestry and heritage live within her on a cellular level. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was really, really powerful because it is true. You know, you do carry your ancestors. I mean, we, we've talked about this, like you carry your ancestors with you in ways that you just don't know. And you just have to really tap into that, Mm -hmm. um, and recognize that even though you feel like that's missing, it's really not, it is embedded in you. Absolutely. And yeah, again, like you said, you have to be open to receive it. You have to open your ears, your heart, your mind, um, your energy to receive that heritage, to receive those things, and then to take them with you how you choose to, to create your own story with that. So yeah, that was like, that's going to really stick with me. And I think it's just something that's just ongoing for us as more things are being unearthed, Absolutely, especially in this year. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, all of that, all of that stuff in our in our heritage and our ancestry is is coming up, and I, I'm hoping that it's to help us make better choices and um, create new art and create new things for the future. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's all. Sometimes we don't know why we feel what we feel, but we feel something. Um, Mm -hmm. And like you said, it is definitely the past or our ancestors or our heritage just speaking through us, really. Um, And I guess that's that's what the nature is of art is, which is which makes it quite beautiful. So. So, yeah, so it's a good it's a good thing to just keep keep in our minds always that we're never alone. We. Right. That, that our heritage is, is always within within us, which is a good thing. A good note to finish on, I say. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's it for today. We'd like to thank you for listening and let us know what your sweet and savory moments are using the hashtag yams and yuca. That's right. Don't forget to tag us at yams and yuca on Twitter and at yams and yuca podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Alternatively, you can email us at yams and yuca podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is yams and yuca podcast at gmail.com. Yes, we want to hear your thoughts on today's conversation because uh, it was so great. Let's keep the conversation going. And please, please, please feel free to share your stories as well and add them to our Yams and Yuka tapestry. We will chat with you guys next time and we look forward to it. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye.